Okay, welcome to the latest Simulate. This week we are looking at the acting career of David Bowie, a legend in music history, certain to be played long after both myself and Daryl are long in our graves. But will his movies be played in a hundred years' time or so? Because that's when I'm planning on dying. Uh, my name is Adam Marsh, and I'm joined as ever by my co-host and resident expert on Simulate, Daryl Buxton. Daryl, how are you today? I'm good, thanks, Adam. Hello, everyone. Looking forward to this immensely. I know. We So we, we in the previous podcast, we've let it slip how much of a Prince fan I am. And sadly, we lost Prince in 2016, but we also lost David Bowie in 2016, just one of the connections in their, in their varied careers. Now, while I am a huge Prince fan and I am a big David Bowie fan, you are the uber Bowie fan. <laughs> so you're going to take us on a tour of his acting career this week. Yeah, Bowie's sort of my prince, if you like. Yeah, yeah. And uh, all, all you've done so far, Adam, is, is talk about death by the sound know, of it. So, so let's keep that going and, and sort of kick off with that, because um, it occurred to me when the sad news came through about Bowie's death in uh, January 2016, there was a sort of outpouring of grief and mourning and, and sorrow from people like me who'd grown up listening to his music in the 70s and sort of worshipped Ziggy Stardust and Lord the Berlin albums and everything you know and there was a noticeable separate group of people who were very prominent online and on social media and so on and they were basically the labyrinth fans people who knew Bowie through labyrinth and uh, I've I've actually got friends who were sort of slightly younger than me maybe sort of your age or sort of in between our ages who know Bowie primarily as an actor which astonishes me because he's not all that great an actor, you know, and he is he is a great performer in so many other fields. And uh, he can be a great actor, but it amazes me that for some fans, that's what he's known for. The power of Labyrinth cannot be denied, Daryl. Uh, <laughs> it just cannot. I mean, it's a, it holds a very special place in many people's hearts. <laughs> I'll tell you what, we'll 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 get on to Labyrinth in in a while. Let's get the big Bowie films out of the way, I think, because there are some real little nuggets in there and some very weird little stuff that we need to talk about later on. But um, we covered Absolute Beginners, of course, in the Julian Temple uh, podcast and, and the short uh, Jadding for Blue Jean. But the films that Bowie is known for are, are things like The Man Who Fell to Earth with Nicholas Rogue, uh, The Hunger with Tony Scott, uh, Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, the uh, Ashima film, Absolute Beginners, Labyrinth. I, th- I think they're, they're sort of the big five. So uh, what are your general thoughts on Bowie's big film career? Well, as, as I was sat watching Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence uh, last night and thoroughly enjoying it, it was bizarrely the first time I'd seen it because I, you would have assumed, I, I would have assumed I'd have seen it by now, but I haven't. And it struck me as how good Bowie was in it, but also... It made me think about all the other roles that Bowie's done and how the roles that he's most successful in tend to be the roles that are mirroring his own personality at that time. So you have sort of like Aladdin Sane and you have the Man Who Fell to Earth kind of as as a duo kind of thing. And then you have sort of like this this movie here and Absolute Beginners, I guess, where you've got that. They were talking about as as a thin white duke and my Bowie's not perfectly uh, in sync with yours Daryl but that the sort of bleached blonde hair that kind of image um it synced in at that time yeah. in the early 80s and it feels like the ones that were most successful were, were ones were asking Bowie to do Bowie at the time he was doing Bowie and the ones that have not been successful are the ones where they were asking Bowie to do something completely different and it was wasn't what he was into at that time so it didn't come across that, that was my take on it as I was watching those movies. And it feels like the, the, the successful ones, A Man Who Fell to Earth, The Hunger, particularly those early 80s ones, which all tied into a fairly similar period in his life, they all seem to hit the nail on the head in capturing something of Bowie's charisma, star power, uh, just some, some that, that ineffable um, quality that he had, which made him so successful as a musical artist. They managed to capture that in the films that we've been talking about just now. Yeah, um, a bit of history there. I mean, as as Bowie fans know, he was tied into a a very restrictive contract in the 1970s and wasn't really making an awful lot of money, despite making 
nine or ten classic albums, you know, and really not putting a foot wrong on record. He was in this contract with the Tony DeFries and getting, you know, I, I don't know what the figure is, but probably a couple of hundred quid a week or something, and which was more than most people were getting at the time, but it wasn't what Paul McCartney was getting, you know. So basically he said he wanted some of that Wings money. That's what he was after. He was after yeah, that's money. that. I think I think that's it. Yeah, yeah. By the early eighties, he he managed to sort of wangle his way out of this contract, signed with EMI, and suddenly was was sort of free for the first time in his career to really do what he wanted to do. And and this is why he had suddenly had this glut of movies happening because uh, he'd done Man Who Fell to Earth, um, of course, in the seventies, and he'd done things like Just a Gigolo, but suddenly there wasn't anybody saying. No, if people came in with offers, there wasn't this barrier, you know, there wasn't this manager, there wasn't this agent sort of saying, no, David's not free to do that. You know, he was the guy calling the shots. So he'd sort of uh, take on these projects, especially where they were with people that he was interested in working with. I mean, The Hunger, for instance, you know, you offer David Bowie that, oh, you're going to be playing a vampire in a film with Catherine Deneuve and Susan Sarandon, directed by Tony Scott. Yeah, I'll have a bit of that, please, you know and working with the Ashima in Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. These were all things that you could see would appeal to him. As you say, a lot of them also played on that early 80s persona, which we as Bowie fans, the 70s Bowie generation, that had loved the, the costume changes and all the developing images, we suddenly didn't understand why he just put a suit on and bleached his hair. You know, Years and years later, I now see that what he was doing there was playing another Bowie character character but we didn't get that at the time it was man he's he's sold out he's dressing like everyone else you know he's he's just mr 80s you know how i see that now is oh it's it's just another incarnation because he then moved on and did other incarnations later on this was just what he was into at the time but a lot of those films were hits and uh, and I, I i think they appealed to his new audience because he suddenly gained this new audience particularly with the with the let's dance album I think there's something less threatening about Bowie in in the 80s. He'd gone through that whole sort of like transgressive kind of period where, you know, he's, he's singing on stage wearing a jockstrap or whatever, you know, <laughs> in a very revealing outfit. And he'd gone through all that period. He'd done the sort of like the I'm going to be a hardcore artist Berlin period. And, and he'd come out looking fine in a suit, bleach blonde hair, and putting a, a, a ridiculously commercial album together. Yeah, I, I suppose in, in a sentence, he'd kicked heroin and he now looked really, really healthy. There so, you go, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah he, was, he was in a good place, Daryl. <laughs> yeah. And that makes him ideal for becoming a movie star, which you've got to say he, he did. Whether or not you like his performances and whether or not you like that 80s run of films, as you've said, a lot of them were hits and a mainstream audience liked them. And as I've said... A lot of people actually discovered Bowie through those films and, and through those commercial albums in the 80s. I mean, the, the man who fell to earth he'd done in the 70s, and again, that, that was a sort of dream assignment. It was Nicholas Rogue making a film of the of the Walter Tevis novel. Um, you, you can't imagine anyone else even being considered for that part, can you? No. So he'd, he'd done that. And then there'd been this sort of misfire with Just a Gigolo, which, again, looked ideal. You know, he'd done the Berlin albums and here he is doing this sort of German-themed movie with Marlene Dietrich in it. And famously, of course, Bowie and Dietrich never actually met on set. They filmed all their scenes separately, even though they're in the same scenes in part of the film. They're, they're basically both talking to a wall, you know, and then it's all cut together. Magic of Hollywood. It is, it is, it is. But yeah, I, I think you get into that 80s run and I think you have got the commercially acceptable face of David Bowie and, and it appealed to a new audience. And the, the hunger is is a bit of a sort of watered down man who fell to earth in that it's a fairly obvious, it, it's a Bowie part, you know, it, he's good in it. That ageing makeup hasn't aged well, has it? You know, as, as a lot of 80s special effects haven't. But the whole chic look of the film is ideally suited to what Bowie was at that time. I think it's sort of tailor made for him. Yeah, it's an, it's an interesting film because it's very 80s. 
and it knows it. Yeah, it's Tony Scott, it's MTV, it's Vaseline on the lens, it's it's fast-cutting, editing, all that kind of stuff. And Bowie, at that time, fit into that world. It is very, very chic, you know, he, he gets a chance to wear great suits and look really cool, and he doesn't have to stick around for too long. You know, his character's involved in the early part of the movie, so I guess he came on, did a few days on the shoot, met all the, all the other stars, sort of schmoozed with everyone, and, and then went off to... Uh, record tonight the less said about which the better you know well that's an interesting period because I, I i do wonder whether the 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 success of film roles led to him taking his eye off the ball on recording because it, it, looking out through his career there's a clear parallel when he has a glut of film roles the corresponding albums that are released, if there's an album released during that period, is usually one of his, his lesser ones, particularly in the 80s. Yeah. What, what's interesting in that respect, Adam, is I think the Bowie hits that everybody loves from that period, especially from the mid-80s, sort of 84, 85, 86, they're all connected with movies. You, you've, you've got the five songs that he did for Labyrinth, which are fantastic, um, even though I don't like the film, which we'll discuss later. Um, I think the songs that he did for that are great. Um, and then there's stuff like the, he did the theme tune for When the Wind Blows, the, the Raymond Briggs animation. He did the theme tune for Absolute Beginners, which is in, which we've discussed already on the Temple podcast. Well, before we get too deep on this, let's head back to The Man Who Fell to Earth, Nicholas Rogue. 1976. Yeah. Again, it's an absolute given that Bowie is going to play that part, isn't it? You know, who else could? Yeah, I mean, it's one of, it's one of those things where it feels like it's a David Bowie movie directed by Nicholas Rogue yeah, rather than yeah. a Nicholas Rogue movie where he's got David Bowie to be in it. Yeah. Know? Having said that, Rogue, I think, does stamp a certain identity onto it in, in the process. You know, I think the pre-production... And all the publicity and everything surrounding it would have all been centred on, oh, this is David Bowie playing an alien. Is David Bowie really an alien? You know, he he looks the part. He's perfect for this. He's working with this Nicholas Rogue guy. Now, don't forget that Rogue had already got form working with Mick Jagger on on performance, you know. And went on to work with Art Garfunkel in Bad Timing. So, uh, um, so working with big rock stars and, um, and big music names was sort of his forte, you know, in, in that era. But Bowie is a perfect fit for the part. Having said that, he does act. He does push himself. He he does give a genuine performance. He could have easily just gone on and played himself, and he doesn't do that. Is, do you think it's a good performance in the sense that he's responding to the script and the text, or is it a case of him looking at how far he can push his current character? I think both are in there. I think both. I think he's committed to what the film is, and I'm, I'm sure that he'd have read the novel and he'd know that inside out. He'd definitely have seen Nicholas Rogue's earlier films. Mm. He'd, he'd have seen Walkabout. He'd have seen Don't Look Now. He'd know exactly what he was getting into. It's a chance for him to work with the Hollywood star, or well, Hollywood sort of second stringers, I guess. You know, you've got people like Candy Clark in there, who's fabulous in the movie. I think she steals it, mm. and uh, um, and there's great chemistry between her and David Bowie, I think. And they, they both play their parts to perfection. I, I think their their whole relationship on screen is, uh, is is just great. There is, as you say, I think there is a sense of, as well of Bowie seeing this role as being very much part of his own persona at the time and very much the sort of thing that he wanted to explore. If the man who fell to earth hadn't come along, he'd have probably done something like that anyway. On, on record and it's telling that he put a still from the movie on the cover of Low. Yeah I mean why do you think that because obviously he was moving in a different direction at that point. Uh, yeah I mean the film would have still been in cinemas around that time and I think it was a case of let's use this image on the album Low to show that I think there's there's a sort of connection that Nicholas Rogue sort of connected with me you know that he got who I am and and I want to sort of tell my fans that I I want to sort of use that image to say, look, Man Who Fell to Earth was very much a part of the progression of my career and my art and and my whole sort of aesthetic, you know. And now here's the new album. It's got all these weird instrumentals on that you're not going to be expecting. And, I mean, you, you were talking earlier about sort of links 
between different Bowie projects. And I think he sort of tries to link Lowe and the Man Who Fell to Earth together more than he tried to link Lowe and Heroes together. I think it's the critics and the fans that talk about the Berlin trilogy. I don't think Bowie ever quite saw it that way. No, I can see that. But as much as it is, it is his project, it does feel like it was. It, it kind of came along at a point where it was like, this is the perfect opportunity to do a movie that will enhance my image, enhance, enhance um, the public perception of me, get me in cinemas, that kind of stuff. But it doesn't feel like it's the first step on him moving into movies. No, no. And and it's all it's also not a blatantly commercial movie in in the way in the way that labyrinth or um the hunger were you know it's more like a merry christmas mr lawrence i think Mm. it ties in with that in terms of his film career it's it's bowie's attempt to be taken seriously by film critics yeah i know he he does a great job at that but as i say he doesn't doesn't really follow it up it's you know know, some some act some musicians who move into acting some do it, and generally musicians have a very haphazard acting careers because they do it when they can be asked yeah. and in between recording. So they just take roles here and there and here and there. So it's hard to try and create a pattern of what they're doing. I wonder if Bowie on The Man Who Fell to Earth thought of it at that time as being a one-off. Um, again, we've, we've, we've mentioned previously um, the the notion of when Björk made her movie with the Lars von Trier, mm-hmm. the whole idea of that was I'm going to I'm going to make one movie as part of my art, as part of my career. And I wonder if that, that sort of notion was in Bowie's mind in, in 1975, 76. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it does feel that way. Yeah, it, it really does play like that, I think. And. Once he was sort of out of his contract and into the 80s, I think he changed his mind. And I think he thought, well, let's explore movies a little more. Let's have a little bit of fun with them. You know, let's try and do something commercial. And that really did fit in with his image at that time, which is what you were stressing earlier on. The fact that his film career often sort of mirrors where where he's at, where where his headspace is, you know, and I think that's very evident. But then, having said that, he did work on Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, which is a bit more of a throwback to I want I want the critics to take me seriously. I I want to be seen as a serious actor. Mm. I think it's one of those interesting periods in Bowie's life. If we should we move on to Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence? Yeah, yeah, because um, you've watched that. I've I've not rewatched that for for this, so I'm interested to hear what you've got to say about it. Having seen it again, I watched it for the first time last night, and uh, it, yeah, it, it struck me as just a, a really great movie. Aside from Bowie in school uniform flashback moment which is a bit like oh that's that's a that's a misstep um, that's a, yeah I, I wouldn't have done that aside from that i think the movie's massively engrossing and you buy into the characters you you engross and you're totally keen on seeing what these guys are up to and what what how it's going to play out and bowie with his ineffable sort of like mystery as a part of the character you never quite know whether he's actually there or not <laughs> and i think that's part of the, the part of the of his appeal is he actually a character in this or is he just an instigator you know is he yeah. just drops in now do you, do you think bowie brings that to a lot of movies do you, do you think do you think that the persona is important because i i do i think yeah. it's very much part of his 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 film career is the fact that you're casting david bowie means a you get an actor but b you you get this mystique that comes along as well, and if you're a good enough director, you can use that as part of as as part of your plot line and your storyline, you know, and your your texture. Yeah, he's John Wayne. He's Humphrey Bogart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you you get what you're getting, and if you can't make a good film with that amazing charisma and that yeah, you, you get that air of cool. wrong. Yeah, yeah. yeah you're yeah. doing something wrong it's not yeah. bowie's fault it's your <laughs> fault if you yeah. can't make that work and uh, and if you can't you shouldn't be casting him sure sure and i think i think merry christmas mr lawrence is just i mean with, with the blonde air and obviously they have the, the head buried in the sand bit he just works perfectly alongside Tom Conte and uh, Takeshi Kitano uh, in an early role and um, the composer um, uh, uh, Sakamoto, Sakamoto yeah. whose who score for that film is just 
I mean, it's amazing. I remember looking at that film before I'd seen it and thinking, they've got Bowie and he's not on the soundtrack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What are they doing? Well, and then well, you hear well, the soundtrack yeah, and you're like, yeah. oh my God, what a soundtrack. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I know, I know. It was good for Bowie to sort of take a back seat there because quite often he's he's been involved in the music in his films, you know. Again, I get the sense there that he was probably a fan of, of Ryuichi Sakamoto and sort of rather than insist on doing the music himself or even collaborating he, he, I, I guess Bowie just sort of thought I want to hear what this guy does you know I, I, I want to hear what how his soundtrack sounds and yeah it's fabulous it's it, Bowie couldn't have done better certainly in 1982 he couldn't and and although it's very much a Sakamoto soundtrack it's sort of got the Bowie feel to it you know he's he's coming from the same same arena you know yeah absolutely it's it's an astonishing soundtrack but the film's just really really engrossing movie I mean as I say I, I I intended I thought I'll give it an hour and then if I'm if I'm you know if, I, if I'm not feeling it, I'll I'll whack on something different and just find myself totally engrossed and just end up watching the whole thing and and, and loving it you know and going to bed really happy, <laughs> so, which is not the not exactly the uh, opinion you need to come out of the movie. It's quite a, a sad <laughs> microcosm of war and coming together and enemies and friends and 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 in, in a prisoner of war camp in Japan. But yeah, I thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed it. And, and again, Bowie is great in this, but it is utilizing what you've got with Bowie and you've got this this charisma this something intangible about this person that makes people want something from him or, or, or attracts people to him and it's the same it's the same thing in this movie you know um but what occurred to me was just what a purple patch 1983 was for him because he had the obviously he had Merry Christmas Mr Lawrence he also did The Hunger he also did uh, an uncredited appearance in Yellowbeard, which we'll get onto later, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. He also had the biggest commercial album of his career with Let's Dance. Yeah. The previous year, he, he'd done the introduction to The Snowman, and he'd had his Golden Globe nomination for um, a film, arguably, that he probably would have fit into, was Cat People, the, the remake Paul Schrader. He did yes. the soundtrack to that, and it, one of his songs was nominated for Best Golden Globe, Best Song. Bearing in mind that no other Bowie song was ever nominated for an Oscar or a Golden Globe outside of that, you know, so that's that's quite a purple patch there. He had arguably his most successful year, and he'd have agreed with you, I think, because he was all about the commerce at that time, and it was all about raising the profile even more. All like you know, wanting to keep his existing audience. There was always one foot in in that that sort of old camp. He'd got his eye on on going global and getting everybody in the world loving him. And he he, he sort of went some way to doing that, I think, in that period. Yeah. That really kicked that off. Then Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence came along. And as, as I've said, it was sort of an attempt to revert back to the more sort of arty art movie, art school Bowie, you know. But because he picked up this new audience, it was a big commercial hit, you know, a, a Nagisa Oshima movie playing on, on screen, one, screen one of your local flea pit, you know, it happened and mainstream audiences went to see it, you know. Uh, so let's move on now to Labyrinth, which I think is, is a key film in that whole sort of thing that you've been talking about there, Adam, in Bowie being cast to exploit and riff on that, that, magic persona yeah now i i I think i think we're going to disagree on this because i i am not keen on labyrinth but let's let's hear your what i think is going to be a much more glowing take on it. yeah i i mean i I love the film i was 10 years old when i saw it so you 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 were the right age yeah exactly and and you were a crusty old bowie fan who (laughs) didn't get it man (laughs) so i agree i agree (laughs) so i'm watching it from a from a 10 year old's point of view and i thought i i think if you want to be critical about it, it's not a massively inventive script-wise. It's that it's the quest journey, people bumping into different characters, blah, blah, blah. The moral of the story is, you know, be be happy with who you are, all that kind of, all those tropes of 80s Hollywood cinema are in there. But it has this extra verve to it, which Bowie brings, which Jim Henson brings, the puppets and the puppetry. Yeah, for me, it just... it. It lingered. I mean, I don't think it was a massive hit at the time. 
Labyrinth? No, it, it was it was decent. It made its money back. It did yeah. well, you know, but uh, it wasn't E.T., you know. No. Uh, uh, now, can, can I ask, Adam, when you watch Labyrinth today, do you still watch it through the eyes of a 10-year-old? Well, well... I didn't, um, as I, up until I had a child who's now nearing 10, yeah, um, yeah. who won't watch it because I exposed it to him a bit too young and it still frightens him. So <laughs> I think maybe I've, 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 uh, I've ruined it for him. But right. I watch a lot of movies now and think, would my son enjoy this? Would he watch, you know, can I see him enjoying this? And I, and I think Labyrinth's a tricky one because I don't think it's massively, it is aimed at a kid's audience, but like like the best of the Muppets type stuff, there's stuff in there which is either very scary or it's a bit more adult than you would have expected from a from a kids film, and that that ties into to the to the Muppets, obviously the Jim Henson stuff, which always had that through their work, but also like Terry Jones who wrote the screenplay yeah. and the Monty Python background. You, you think about all the films that were around at the time. I mean, Return to Oz came out in the yeah. same year, which is terrifying, you know. Mm. And and then I'd also lump Labyrinth in with a couple of other movies. I think there was this little trend in the mid eighties for for fan, big budget fantasy films all about adolescent girls coming of age sort of thing. You've got the Company of Wolves, you've got uh, Legend, the Ridley Scott film, and you've got this right in the middle of it. So you... Yeah, and this one pisses all over those. Oh, it does. It does, by a mile. Yeah. Even though I don't like Labyrinth all that much, I think it's way, way better than either of those other two. And it gets its adolescent girl thing just right by casting the best actor out of the three films, you know, in, in Jennifer Connelly, who's fabulous. Again, we, we talked about her on, on the Dario Argento podcast because she was, she was sort of discovered in Argento's film Phenomena and then went from that to, to Labyrinth, which was... I, I think her impact on this movie is under underplayed. I think people I obviously... They look at it and they think Muppets, they think David Bowie, blah, blah, blah. And then you look at her and you think, actually, she does a really, really interesting thing in making what could have been a bratty, horrible character likeable enough yeah. that you want to watch the bloody movie and see her change you know and, and her in terms of screen time as well her character carries the film and Bowie sort of pops in and out of it it's another one of these where he sort of is on screen for about 10 or 15 minutes but because it's spread throughout the film you, you think of him as a major character now you were talking about the verve that Bowie brings to the film and I, I agree with that but I would say that only happens during the musical numbers. I think his performance is actually uh, rather flat. And I think his wig and his costume do more of the acting than the man himself does. The um, costume, possibly. I mean, it's giving yeah. people nightmares, yeah. isn't it? Um, yeah. The copies alone. Um, but yeah. he's definitely... I don't know. I mean, I, I guess it depends on what you want from Bowie. I, I think he... Potentially, actually, arguably, in this movie more than the other movies that we've talked about, I'm more likely to forget that he's David Bowie in Labyrinth than I am in Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, than oh, I that, am in Manuel. That, that amazes me. Because I, I just, well, look, so, I, I think of him as the Goblin King. Yeah. Do you not then tie that in with, with the Laughing Gnome and all of that sort of imagery? I tie know? nothing into the Laughing Gnome. <laughs> <no>. um, <laughs> then, much, no, I don't. I, 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 obviously, if you're a David Bowie fan and you're looking for shit like that, then that's there, you know, that is yeah. there. But I think there's much more of like, this is a distinct character that he's playing that utilises yeah. some of that, Bo- Vo- that Bowie charisma in a different way than other movies did. Yeah, I would again argue that that comes out a lot more when he gets a chance to do what he does best, which is sing and dance, you know. Well, sure, the, but he does like yeah, three yeah, numbers yeah. in the whole movie, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. But that's, that's quite a significant amount of his screen yeah. time, is that? Yeah, so. yeah I, I guess so, I guess so. But, you know, he does have a fair bit of dialogue and he seems a little bit disinterested. I mean, there's even a line in the film towards the end of the film when you get into the whole sort of Escher sort of stuff with the, the funny staircases and things. There's there's a line that he's, he says to Jennifer Connolly, which is, um, I'm exhausted from living up to your expectations of me. 
And that sort of sums up David Bowie's participation in this film for me. I um, know, that's harsh. That's very harsh. He does He does look a little bit disinterested to me. And, uh, and I, I'm not keen on the film anyway. I, I'm, I'm not of the generation that sort of grew up on, on Jim Henson, you know. Having said that, I, I, lo- I love the Muppets, but uh, a lot of these sort of, uh, sort of puppetry films that then came along in the 80s, other people like them a lot more than I do, and I think that's especially the case with Labyrinth. Because I, I, I was sort of on a real Bowie downer at this point. You know, Tonight had come out and it had been a disaster. It's film rolled. I, I didn't really like Absolute Beginners all that much at the time, and I love it now, but I didn't really like that at the time. It was a sort of low point for, for Bowie and me. You know, I, I wasn't getting on with him, and... Uh, um, and, and this sort of added to that. But so when I went into the movie, I'd seen Jennifer Connelly in Phenomena and I sort of wanted to see what she was going to do in, in a, a big mainstream movie. And the key point for me was Terry Jones. I went to see that film wanting a good Python-esque Terry Jones movie. And I was disappointed that I didn't really get that either. The humour sort of fell a little bit flat and was a little bit juvenile and seemed aimed at an audience that was younger than I am, which I'm sure it was. But, you know, I was still there paying my sort of £3.50 or whatever, and I didn't get £3.50's worth of entertainment. See, I I, I feel that's a harsh... (laughs) That's a harsh criticism, that a movie aimed at a different audience didn't appeal to you at that time. Yeah, that feels like, well, yeah, of well, course I, not. I, my, my argument there, Adam, is that the presence of Terry Jones as director ought to have aimed it, in, in the way that Time Bandits did. You know, the, the, Time Bandits is arguably aimed at a young audience in part as well, but it, it's got something there for the Python fans, and this didn't yeah. have. Well, Terry Jones only wrote it, didn't he? He didn't direct it. Jim Henson directed it. No, Jones, Jones directed it. No, Jim Henson did. Are you sure about that? Yeah, ninety-nine percent sure. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna check that. <laughs> okay, let's uh, then some music on while Daryl checks that. You are, you are right. I'm amazed by that. So I am gonna I, take that snippet yeah, of sound yeah, yeah. <laughs> and put it at the end of every podcast we record from now on. Yeah, yeah, oh, you yeah. are right, Adam. There we go. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it, it was only written by Terry Jones but it was directed yeah. by Jim Henson and the story was by Jim Henson and by Dennis Lee, who did the, I think he did the fairies. Oh, it's Alan Lee. So it was obviously a Muppet project that Terry Jones was brought in to provide some dialogue flourishes, uh, make it a bit more quirky and British kind of thing, I guess. Cause I think that's the vibe they were going for fantasy equals British kind of thing. Yeah. Which, which was the case with some of the films that we've mentioned, or, you know, legend was the same. The, a lot of this stuff was being shot on in British studios, wasn't mm-hmm. it? So, so, yeah, uh, um, yeah it, it just, it just with, with the Python connection, it just didn't have enough of that type of humour for, for, for the older unlike, audience. Unlike Yellowbeard, which was a massive success. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, I suppose this, this gives us the opportunity to go on and talk about some of Bowie's cameos now. Are, are, we, are we sort of done with Labyrinth? Yeah, uh, just, just one final thing just regarding yeah, the sort yeah. of like Mon- Monty Python-esque um, influence on this. Maybe it was a case of that kind of humour had had its day possibly at at that time you know always on a low because i think it did sort of come back you know yeah i mean maybe maybe like bowie that was a a bit of a low point at that time possibly yeah or or doing something different from what their fans expected them to be doing yeah which then i suppose led on to them trying different things like a fish called wonder which which was out within a couple of years you know um so yeah you're you're probably right on that Mm. Um, but i yeah i i i love labyrinth i think it's endlessly rewatchable and i think it's one of those ones that more so than, say, Legend in Company of Wolves and I guess even Neverending Story, which I'm not a big fan of. Yeah. But yeah. those kind of movies, where the, this one is the one that gets replayed and replayed and replayed and it gets released again on DVD and replayed and replayed and replayed. And they keep trying to find ways of continuing this franchise. But it kind of feels like without Bowie, what's the point? Yeah, yeah. What we're going to do for the rest of the podcast is um, there's a little batch of very, very, very odd 
projects that Bowie got involved in in the 1990s. And we'll talk about those as a little group. We're really, really digging deep on some David Bowie films that uh, listeners might not have seen. And we're going to tell you which ones you should see and which you shouldn't, if any. <laughs> should, should you see any of his 90s films? But before then, about half of his film roles are sort of walk on one, one morning one minute on screen cameos and i want to talk about those as a little bit let's do it because i mean half of his credits are david bowie playing david bowie yeah and added to that as well i think there's this element of cameo roles where if you consider films like the prestige where he plays nikolai tesla yeah. or um <laughs> but, but, yeah but he's yeah. playing david bowie yeah. playing nikolai tesla yeah Twin Peaks Firewalk With Me, where he plays Philip Jeffries, who comes from another dimension. You know, he's a, he's an FBI agent, but he's, he's appeared from somewhere else, somewhere that isn't our world, you know. And you and then you've got to uh, Basquiat, where he plays Andy Warhol. So that's an interesting one to me. That's an interesting one to me, because they had a kind of love-hate relationship, didn't they? Yes. Uh, Bowie and Warhol, because, I mean, yeah, yeah. Bowie famously did a song for Andy on... Yeah, um, yeah. On Hunky Dory, Hunky yeah. Dory, yeah, and and then met him, <laughs> and yeah. it didn't go well. So yeah. Yeah, I find it interesting that he came back like twenty, thirty years later, twenty five years later to, to play Andy Warhol. Yeah, but again, in playing Andy Warhol, I'm I'm arguing that he's almost playing David Bowie. That the fact that it's David Bowie in that wig means something. There's a significance there beyond the fact that he's playing Andy Warhol. You're supposed to take from that oh, I recognise that this is David Bowie. This is the charisma of David Bowie in this weird, exotic role, playing this this character who is a real-life figure who has got a, a sort of connection with his career, you know. And I, I, th- I think parts like Tesla and like the, the, the role that he played for David Lynch all tie into the parts where he's playing himself, you know. You then get these little daft cameos where he's obviously doing it because of his mates, like the, the infamous shark in yellow beard, you know, yeah. which is a literal walk-on, you know. Uh, does that does that tie into... Because David Bowie made appearances in things like um, Nathan Barley and in Extras. Extras, yeah. yeah. And even the, the, the Ruttles too. did the Ruttles too, yes, yeah. So it's like, I mean, obviously, I mean, we've seen Jasmine for Blue Jean, which is yeah. kind of like his attempt at doing a British sitcom. Yeah. And he, yeah. he was even in a British sitcom, yeah. a cheap, a full stretch. Yes, yeah. The Reese Dinsdale yeah. sitcom. That's, that's in right. The 90s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you think, what? <laughs> you yeah, yeah. But he obviously loved crappy British yeah. comedies. Yeah. Um, well, Bowie's own sense of humour has always been very, very broad and rather ridiculous. You know, he, he would throw ludicrous puns e- even into some of his most heartfelt and most arty songs. But this was where Bowie's sort of level of humour was at, you know, and I, I bet people who knew him knew that. People like Brian Eno were, were probably getting phone calls from him saying, oh, Brian, you know, come over to the apartment in New York for the weekend. And you, you get the sense that they might have been going, oh, no, David's on the phone again. I'm, I'm going to have to sit through all of his terrible gags for a weekend, you know. And, and there, there, there was this element of Bowie that was the very, very dumbed down humour. And he'd bring that into his record, you know, sometimes in, in the strangest places and do these ridiculous puns and things that weren't even funny, you know, but were to him. So he'd always got that sort of sitcom sort of sensibility. Zoolander is is perhaps the classic. I I, I think he's genuinely funny in that. I, mm. I think he, he really gets into the spirit of that movie. Rather than just coming on and being David Bowie, he does that, but he does that within the world of Zoolander. I think he really gets what that film's about. I suppose having had years of wearing ridiculous costumes himself and being married to a model, he knew that world inside out. And as we've talked about, he liked daft comedy as well. So he probably thought, oh, this is perfect. So this is yeah. a wonderful way I can marry those two together. Yeah. Now I want to sort of go right back to the start of Bowie's uh, career before we move on to the 90s and tie in this cameo thing because he was he was in uh, The Virgin Soldiers, the, the British movie of the late 60s, and he he actually forgot that he was in it. He, he, he was asked about it in interview after interview for a time, in, especially in the 80s when he was doing loads of publicity. And people kept saying, oh, David, you were in the Virgin Soldiers, weren't you? And he said, oh, yeah, I was. I, I, I remember being on set for a day 
but I don't know if I'm actually in the film. And uh, he, he is in that film. He's in it for about 10 seconds, about 35 minutes into the film. There's a scene in a, in a, in a bar with soldiers in a bar. And you see Bowie, I think he's being carried behind the bar by the bartender. His sort of grinning face sort of floats across the screen for a few seconds and then off from right to left, you know. And it's such a fleeting shot. He himself couldn't even remember whether it stayed in the film or not. Well, when did he, he did this before, I guess, before Space Odyssey hit? Yes. And why, why I wanted to go back to the 60s period is because we, we've not mentioned his very first film yet, which was a short film called The Image, from 1967 and it was the first film written and directed by a guy that we both know who's been to quad and appeared there michael armstrong who very similar to norman j warren michael was part of that generation of british horror film directors of the late 60s and early 70s but he'd made this very first film he'd made this film the image now michael was a music fan in the 60s when he was in his late teens and on the day that everybody else went out and bought Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, an album was released by this young sort of folky comic, nobody knew quite how to categorise him, sort of young singer called David Bowie, who'd been trying to get a foothold in the business. And Michael Armstrong claims to be the only person who went out and bought David Bowie's album on that first day. He, he always says... I think three people had copies of David's album. His manager, David, and me. I, I went and bought one. And he got in touch with Bowie. He loved the album. And he got in touch with him and, and said, look, do you want to make a film with me? And they ended up making this thing called The Image. And I, I really like it. I, th- I think you, mm. you've watched it now, haven't you? I did, yeah. I watched it this week. Um, I'd, I'd love to get your take on it. I thought it was great. I th- when, it was, when was it made? 1960? It was 1967. And then it got released in cinemas as a support film in 68. So it would have been just after Bowie's first album and before Space Oddity. Yeah, I think it's really good. Obviously, Roman Polanski's repulsion looms large in the visuals in this. For, for, God, for God's sake, never mention that to Michael Armstrong, though. Right. He, 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 does, he doesn't like people saying that, but it, you're, you're absolutely right, though. <laughs> why, from, why? From, from the soundtrack to the black and white to the whole look of the thing... It's it's repulsion. It's repulsion, yeah. I mean, it completely is, and it's very very good. Uh, and, and, and again, it's got that Bowie, the prototype Bowie, alien space. Very very much even, and it which is which is really only forming at that time. And I yeah. think this this film is is a big step towards sort of helping form that sort of character. Yeah, I think seeing that on screen, you realise what kind of like weird charisma he's got which is not necessarily evident on on the album of david bowie's album yeah. you know because yeah, it's like not, it's a weird comedy folk thing not at all that didn't really become evident in his music until much later i'd, I'd say maybe post post ziggy you know yeah um, uh, so so michael armstrong's tapping into something there that nobody else was and i think michael deserves his due for mm. if, he, if he didn't discover david bowie i think he certainly discovered and tapped into and made Bowie aware of something within his own character that maybe Bowie himself hadn't been aware of before. I mean, the, the, the film in a nutshell, it's a two-hander with Bowie and Michael Byrne. The story of the image, if, if you, it's on YouTube, anyone who wants to see it can, you know, it's, uh, it's great. It's over in 15 minutes and it's, it's an artist painting a picture of a young man and it's, it's, to us, it's clear it's David Bowie. If you'd seen that film in 1968, you wouldn't have known it was Bowie, but we do. So we've got we've already got that extra level to it. And this figure sort of reaching out in desperation from the canvas. That's how he's being drawn. And then the real Bowie appears, the young David Bowie appears, sometimes looking as though he's dead or he's got some severe wound on, on somewhere on his body. And he's appearing at windows and in doorways and in different rooms in the house and he's obviously like a ghost or some kind of spirit or something and then at the end of the film in a very Polanski very repulsion like shot you sort of find out what he may or may not be and what the relationship between the characters may or may not be 
Or do you? You know, it's uh, left open to your interpretation. Check out the image if you've not seen it. It's Bowie's first film and he's often written out of history or, or sort of dismissed as a bit of a joke or something. But it's, I think it's actually a lot more important than that. Yeah, yeah you see the prototype of what, what he would do later on. I think the interesting one of the interesting things that... Um, that I took from it and it and just the way it was filmed obviously they're filming it as an actor playing that role rather than the David Bowie or rather than Bowie in capital letters playing the role you know it's just how small he looks yes yeah he looks really tiny in some yeah. of those shots and you think oh my god he's very I, uh, I, very very fragile too yeah, more, absolutely. even more than in his heroin years you know he looks yeah really frail really yeah. small We'll move on to the 90s to finish off. And the first thing... Yeah, I can we just... Say... Before, before we do that, though, can, can yeah. I just... Because I actually watched one other thing. Yeah. I think ties into this and also ties into Labyrinth in a way. Because one thing I couldn't marry up was why how Labyrinth fit into Bowie's characters. Because you had the sort of, like, suit blonde hair, then you had the tuxedo Tim Machine thing late 80s, and then you had this little one shot of Labyrinth. And I was trying to think, well, how does Labyrinth the Goblin King character, fits in with some of the other ones. So I watched Baal from 1982, the TV adaptation, and him playing the storyteller in that. And I thought, okay, there's the connection, there's the thing. And that kind of ties back into this one as well, I think. Yeah, I can see that. And that was directed by uh, Alan Clark, who was probably the BBC's top talent through the 70s and early 80s. There's a great box set of, of all of his BBC play for today's and so on which Baal is in. And um, again, that was the one thing in 1982-83 that I saw Bowie in that I really liked and that I really thought, this is the Bowie of old. This is what I want him to be doing. You know, I don't want tonight. I don't want him uh, almost sending up or playing around with his persona in things like The Hunger. What I want is him doing experimental theatre on at half past nine on, on BBC TV, you know, with a really great director. That that was a sign for me that he's not lost it. He's, there's still some some inkling of the old Bowie in there, you know. I, I watched it and found it interesting just how how dumbed down BBC TV is now. <laughs> <laughs> Where you, you had on BBC One, here's David Bowie in a virtual Brecht adaptation, directed by Alan Clark, and it's difficult viewing. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's, not, it's not like you know, whack it on on the BBC one. This is hard work. You got to sit and kind of bloody concentrate. You know. Yeah, but um, play play for today was like that every week. You know, and and viewers basically had no choice. You know, yeah. you you either watch that or you watch ITV. You know, and <laughs> well, that's something. Yeah, yeah now yeah. you won't get them those on any of those channels. So. Tricky. No, Tricky. no, not at all, not at all. So Bowie in the nineties. We we mentioned Twin Peaks as one of his one of his great cameos. I I just want to throw in another little Daryl fantasy here. You know, I love the idea that when David Lynch was making Twin Peaks three, the recent seventeen part series, and Philip Jeffries, the Bowie character, was written into it. And I love this scenario that the news comes through in the morning while they're in sort of pre-production. News comes through. David Bowie's died. And then the staff saying, Mr. Lynch, we've got a problem. You know, your next episode's got Philip Jeffries in, you know, and what are we going to do? Are we going to recast? Are we going to, what's going to happen? And Lynch sort of musing for for 30 seconds. And then, and of course, what, what they did was replaced David Bowie with, a boiling kettle or something something that looks a hell of a lot like a boiling tea kettle took over the role of Philip Jeffries in Twin Peaks. Only David Lynch can do that. And I bet David Bowie, wherever he may be, is looking down and loving that. But what, what a shame that Bowie died when he did for so many reasons. But one of the big ones is he didn't get a chance to reprise Jeffries in Twin Peaks. But let, let's look at what what he did do in the 90s. Um, what a period. for you know, you, people, talk, people talk about David Bowie's 80s period as, a, as an unusual <laughs> period. And it's like, have you seen what he did in the 90s? You know, it's yeah, yeah. very unusual, particularly in film. Yeah. Um, yeah, where do you want to start? Do you want to start with the, uh, the pasta film? Yeah, Linguini Incident, which I'm quite a fan of. I really like this. It got slated when it came out, and then it was re-released on DVD after the Austin Powers films came out under the title Shago Rama. 
Well, that makes as much sense as the Linguini incident as a title. Well, the Linguini incident is is a passing reference in the movie. It's nothing to do with the film. All the main characters in the film. It's like literally two side characters have a story about the Linguini incident. It's like it's got nothing to do with the rest of the film. No, no. So what are we calling this movie then? What's it really about? God knows. Um, the, the, the Houdini incident would be a better time. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. No escape um, yeah, 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 from yeah. the film or, <laughs> or uh, the, the escape Houdini um, escape act. Yeah. So, so in a nutshell, it's an early 90s New York set film. It's mainly set around the restaurant. You've got Book Henry and Andre Gregory, who's famous as the Andre from My Dinner with Andre. And they're playing this sort of trading places type couple who, who run this restaurant. And they're getting David Bowie's uh, waiter character involved in all of these crazy bets that he keeps losing. No, that's that's really concise way of describing the film. We don't find out any of that until about an hour in. <laughs> because we're following <laughs> Rosanna Arquette and her adventures with Houdini. Exactly. It's a movie I wanted to like a lot more than I actually did. I'd say give the Linguini incident a try. You you might just like it. Yeah, it's 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 fun and arguably the best main role he did in the nineties, <laughs> <laughs> which is not a high bar to hurdle no. over, but you know it, it, it's there. It, you know, it, it, there's nothing wrong with it, and that's there's lots wrong with it. But yeah. you're not watching it thinking, oh god, this is awful. I can't watch yeah. anymore. You, you know, you you enjoying it enough. You you're going along with the story it, as it gets more and more ridiculous as they they're robbing these places with no like with relative ease to the point where it's just like, God, I it's that is that how easy it is to rob a restaurant. Yeah, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll do it. God, yeah, it's dead yeah, easy. Yeah. You know? yeah, it gets to the point where they're going in and the staff are actually, they've, they've got the sacks ready and they're piling money into them. Worth, worth a go, I'd say. You, you may just like it. You may not. Yeah, I mean, if, you, if you're a fan of those sort of like indie American, I guess pre-Tarantino, where yeah, yeah. I guess if Tarantino made this, the crime would be much more realistic, I guess. Yeah, There's yeah. a certain air of like you're watching some sort of, screwball comedy it's not quite screwball yeah, yeah. comedy but it's got those expect, elements to it yeah you're expected to believe that this is a, you, you you suspend the disbelief that this is the real world this is a version yeah, of yeah, new york yeah. and a version of life moving through the 90s we've talked about some of the the big cameos that bowie did in twin peaks and in basquiat and things mm. like that but let's get to the end of the decade and these two very very odd features that he did again ones where you 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 surmise that bowie probably did these because there were certain people on the films that he wanted to work with so we've got eel mio west or my west or gunslinger's revenge a spaghetti western with David Bowie and Harvey Keitel heading the cast. Now, that makes it sound <laughs> way better than it actually is. Yeah, yeah it makes it sound, oh my God, you know. Again, I like it and Adam doesn't, but I think we sort of meet in the middle in places, don't we? Well, the fact that it's got in, in the description of IMDb, it says comedy, drama, western yeah. as a genre. I don't think they think they're making a comedy. No. I think it's afterwards they've added comedy to it because it's just awful. It's basically, it's David Bowie and Harvey Keitel heading the cast in a Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman episode. (laughs) That's the more the vibe I get than than Spaghetti Western and Klaus Kinski and uh, Clint Eastwood and Sergio Leone. No, I'm getting Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman from watching this. I'm, I'm a, I think it's only termed the spaghetti western because it's a western made in Italy. Italy, it? yeah, you know, it's yeah. it's nothing like your Django's or or your 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 man with no name, is it? You know, no. But I I, I think it's got elements that I like. I, th- I think Bowie's very good in it. I, I think he he likes playing the sort of cartoon villain. You know, yeah, he's playing um, pantomime. He's doing yeah, panto, yeah, isn't yeah. he? He's the- but doing it well, I think. Yeah. Well, what what attracted Bowie to the role? I'd always thought that it might might have been the chance to work with Harvey Keitel. But the main thing that Bowie liked about the movie was the script, apparently. And he liked the elements of the script, whereby his character is this young gunslinger who comes into town and takes over the town because the old gunslinger, played by Keitel, who he's been pursuing across the Wild West, won't meet him in confrontation and Bowie travels with this entourage and he's got these two younger gunslingers 
working alongside him and they sort of kill everyone in the town whenever is necessary. But Bowie has got a travelling photographer. He's got his own sort of paparazzi who travels around with him. And this paparazzo character is played by Michelle Gomez. And Bowie sort of snaps his fingers whenever he wants her to take a photo. And obviously, she's not lugging around a little phone or anything. She's lugging around 1880s primitive photography equipment with a tripod and everything and a massive sort of explosive flash and stuff, you know, and taking photos of Bowie sort of threatening people with knives in bars and things. And Bowie apparently read this script and loved that whole sort of idea that, that his character would almost be like a rock star with his entourage um, um, employing his own photographer in a world where that didn't fit. And uh, that, yeah. that was the thing that appealed to him. Well, I guess I guess Wild Bill Hickok did that kind of thing, didn't? Yeah, he? yeah, very, very much. He's such a weird, weird cast. Because yeah, not yeah. only the two people that he's got with him, you got Michelle Gomez playing the killer paparazzi, and then you've also got the other guy is Kwame Koyama. Yeah, yeah. Play, the, the the playwright, you know, famous yeah. playwright. It's just like, what are you doing in this as well? Yeah. <laughs> again, again, you know. Do you want to do a film with Harvey Keitel and David Bowie? Yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. please. And yeah. to be fair, I guess both of those at that at that point in their careers were like, "Do you want to get paid to act?" Yeah. yeah. Um. Yeah. Yes, please. Yes, thank you very much. That would be nice. Um. So yeah, I can understand it. But you know, obviously, looking back on it, you've got Michelle Gomez, Kwame Koyama, David Bowie, and Harvey Keitel. Yeah, very odd. Very odd. Yeah. So, but I I would say worth seeing just for that. I think we should finish in 1999, as you're a Prince fan, you know, with, um, well, what is this film called? It's uh, it's either called Everybody Loves Sunshine or it's called B-U-S-T-E-D. And I yeah. think it goes under a couple of other titles as well. I don't ever remember seeing it, so I can't see it. I, I, never, I never saw it in either version when it no, came out. No, so. no. So it's made by a guy called Andrew Goth. He's, he's made four or five films. He's still making films at the moment. But Andrew's a bit like our pal uh, Dominic Burns, in, in which whenever he makes a film, he gets a massive superstar in it, mm-hmm. even though he's, he's making a film for Peanuts, and he always manages to get a huge name in it. Andrew has made films with Sam Neill, Wesley Snipes, David Bowie, he did one with Matt Lucas and Luke Goss, which are they're, they're probably the lowest profile people that he's worked with. And yet he makes films for, for like £1.98, you know, <laughs> and they look like it. And yet they've always got these massive Hollywood names in them. Everybody loves Sunshine. It's a post Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels, a British geezer gangster movie. I think some of it was shot on the Isle of Man and some of it was shot in Liverpool, I think. Bowie's in it again for about 15 minutes, but it's a spread 15 minutes. And it looks as though he's worked a few days on the movie. This isn't, you know, getting Sean Connery to come in for a morning or whatever. He's clearly done like a week on it or something. And the the reason why Bowie did this is because he was very heavily into drum and bass at the time. And he was recording stuff like... um, Little Wonder. Yeah, Little Wonder and some of the tracks on, on his albums in the 90s, you know, were very heavily inde- indebted to drum and bass. And he'd become friendly with a lot of the guys on the scene. In particular, he was big mates with Goldie. And Goldie got cast as the lead in Everybody Loves Sunshine. And he obviously got on the phone to Bowie and said, I'm, I'm doing this movie next month, you know, do you fancy it? And uh, Bowie said, oh, sure, yeah. It's very low budget. It's got that sort of feel to it. And it's got this pretty ludicrous plot where, where you've got all, it's all the traditional gangster stuff. Um, they're all fighting each other for territory. There's kidnapping involved. The Chinese triads get involved. It's got the kitchen sink in there, you know. And then it turns out at the end that they're, they're also a sort of budding rap act to perform in a nightclub you know and and david bowie's in there flitting in and out as the the, the sort of boss of the gang you know the mr big mm-hmm. and uh so yeah we, we we've sort of told you pretty much everything you need to know about everybody loves sunshine i i couldn't even figure out why it was called that Maybe that's a running trend on the David Boy movies of the 90s we can't quite figure out why they're called the things they're called linguini incident yeah but for Bowie, it's a chance to come over and meet Goldie and spend a week with Goldie, basically, and have a bit of fun. And and he's playing the sort of character 
that a 16-year-old David Bowie might have imagined he'd be playing in a movie sometime in the 1990s. A Cockney geezer, basically. Very good. I think that wraps us up, does it, Daryl? I mean, did you I want think to... so, Adam, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, he didn't do much of note after after that other than Spongebob. Um, yeah, well, he, he sort of got into TV and he, he's very good in things like extras, you know, into, into the sort of early 2000s. But, yeah, his film career rather rather sort of dried up after that. And um, uh, The Prestige, I suppose, is is the big one. But, again, just, just a cameo as Tesla, which is gimmick casting, really, you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But, uh, you know, hey. There you go. If you're uh, Christopher Nolan, you got the chance to work with David Bowie, so sure, sure. why the hell not? Go for the gimmick every time in that case. Cool, lovely. Thank you very much. That wraps us up for David Bowie, Cracked Actor. Um, and we will uh, see you again in a couple of weeks' time. I want to thank Darby Quad and I want to thank BFI for helping support these podcasts. And also, let us know if you want any topics that you want us to cover. We are firing through topics at the moment like nobody's business. So if there's anything you want to want to hear what me and Daryl think about or enjoy about, then please let us know. We've got a Facebook page. Yeah, just give us a shout and we'll, we'll see what we can do. Okay, no, take care and we'll see you in a couple of weeks' time.